A lot of my local ministry in Sweden uh, is involved in the ministry of apologetics. Apologetics is how we use uh, philosophy, logic, science, um, popular culture, many different means to create bridges for communicating the gospel, to show why it makes good sense to follow Jesus Christ, good reasonable sense, why there, we have good reasons to believe that the, what the Bible is telling us is true. For those of you who are interested in learning more about apologetics, in just three weeks' time, I'm going to be giving an, an all-day apologetic seminar Saturday, the 4th of February, at Calvary Baptist Church here in Altoona. So, 4th of February, Calvary Baptist Church. Go on to their church website to find the times and everything like that. It'll be uh, basically an all-day seminar on apologetics where we'll be talking about some of the questions like arguments for the existence of God. Why... Um, do we believe that the Bible is true? How do we know the Bible is trustworthy and the historicity of the resurrection of Christ, the most significant thing that we as believers can know and understand and share with others? So check that out. Come on out on February 4th. <clears throat> in our apologetics ministry in Sweden, we do a number of different things. We have online courses where we uh, teach people who are located all over the country uh, in various apologetic topics. I've been doing that even while we've been here in the U.S. I've been teaching a course on Islam during the fall term. We do uh, webinars and we have a number of YouTube videos we put together with apologetic content in Swedish. And I do a lot of writing and publishing. Most of my writing and publishing is done in Swedish. And every time I release a new book, uh, friends and supporters here in America say, well, where can I get it? And I say, well, it's only in Swedish. But finally, aha, I've listened to uh, popular demand and release one of my books in English. And so it's uh, Beyond Narnia, The Theology of C.S. Lewis. So if you're a fan of C.S. Lewis or if you love theology, this is the book for you. So you can come see me afterwards to get a copy of that. When we were here in America last time, for four years ago, I was working on a, a, a different book at that time. It was a, a book on LGBTQ issues and the church. And when that book was released in Sweden it immediately broke sales records for its publisher. And it has led to an incredible number of opportunities to minister to people in various ways, both in uh, counseling so-called side B gay Christians, also Christians who have a traditional biblical understanding of marriage and sexuality, but who feel an attraction to, to people of the same sex, counseling parents, Christian parents whose young adult children have come out as part of the LGBTQ community and need help in understanding how to love their child without giving up their biblical convictions. I've been called upon to advise many different individual local churches and Christian organizations and even whole denominations in both Sweden and Finland um, as they try to find a way forward for ministering uh, in these times. In fact, uh, in Finland, I was asked to come and hold a public debate in the month of September with a bishop of the Lutheran Church there. <clears throat> and this bishop was, uh, was an old-fashioned liberal theologian, I guess you could say. And, yeah, we both presented our cases and everything like that. And I don't know if you can ever say that there's a, a winner in a debate like that, but I did get him at least to admit in front of a, an audience of a bunch of Baptists that he doesn't believe the whole Bible is the Word of God, he recognizes that the biblical texts are the biggest problem for his view on marriage and sexuality, and he doesn't think that we can apply the biblical teaching on marriage and sexuality in our situation today. So I think that was a pretty significant gain. 
So, uh, yeah, so we are grateful for you here at Grace Bible Church and your partnership in ministry for many, many years. We have some prayer cards that are available. I put some over there on the box where you give your tithes and offerings, or you can come and see Kay and me afterwards and, and get a copy of that as well. I'd ask you to turn with me in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Let's pray together. May your words alone be spoken today, Lord, and may your words alone be received for your glory and for our sake we pray. Amen. Reading in Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near to it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. Well, how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And the eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself? someone else. Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, <clears throat> they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's, some, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he ordered the chariot to stop. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. May God add his blessing to this reading of his holy word. Now, as far as we know, Luke was the only Gentile author of any book in the New Testament. And he's writing both the Gospel of Luke and here in the book of Acts to a Gentile, Theophilus, who was probably a, some sort of Roman officer. And one of Luke's great concerns in both the Gospel and in the book of Acts is that no obstacle of age, sex, religious tradition, physical ability or disability, race or ethnic origin can keep people or should keep people from hearing the gospel and following Christ. I'll give a little bit of background of what's going on here. When uh, God first made a covenant with Abraham in the book of Genesis in chapter 12, we, was a, God made a promise that had three parts to it. First, that Abraham would become the father of a great nation, that he would inherit the land, 
And that through Abraham's family, God would bless the entire earth. And although Abraham's family, the people of Israel, were God's chosen people, we see throughout the Hebrew scriptures that this message of hope and salvation was never restricted only to the people of Israel. There was always a door open to the outsider to come in. Now, much later, after Jesus' atoning death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, Jesus gave his disciples some parting words, this great commission that also shows the global scope of the gospel message. And then moments before Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, he tells his disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, this verse becomes something of an outline for everything that goes on in the book of Acts, where we see the gospel following exactly that path, starting in Jerusalem and Judea, this province around Jerusalem in Acts chapters 2 through 6, and then in chapter 8, where it spreads to Samaria, and then starting in chapter 9, where we see through the, the missionary travels of the Apostle Paul, how it spreads to the entire empire, to the, the world, the entire known world at that time. Now, here in chapter 8, this passage that we've read today, we see the gospel has come to Samaria. Now, the Samarians were generally despised people in the eyes of the Jewish people because they were not purebred Jewish people. They were not pure blood. They were half-breeds, if you would. They were mixed race. And so the Jewish people of Jerusalem looked down upon them because they were descended from a mixture of Assyrian settlers who came in after the Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC who intermarried with the Jewish people there and the Sumerians were the, the offspring that came as a result of that. In Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, we see how God revealed to Peter that God shows no partiality but in every nation, anyone who fears him and who does what is right is acceptable to him. And we see this Roman officer named Cornelius who there finds faith in Christ. And then the rest of the book of Acts follows the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys to bring the gospel to the rest of the empire. So here in chapter 8, we see the, the first part of chapter 8, how God led Philip to go to Samaria to preach the gospel. Now, the Philip that we meet here is Philip the Evangelist. This is not the same Philip who was one of the original 12 disciples. This Philip that we meet here in chapter 8, we first met a few chapters earlier in Acts chapter 6, where he was one of the seven Greek-speaking deacons who were appointed to take care of the practical needs of the Greek-speaking widows who were living in Jerusalem at that time. So now when God led Philip to go to Samaria... Because of this Jewish attitude towards the Sumerian people, Philip must have wondered, what am I doing here? These people are like, they're unworthy, basically. But then he soon discovered how large numbers of Sumerians were believing in the gospel and were being saved and how miracles were taking place there. People were being healed. People were being filled with the Holy Spirit. But then, just about the time the revival in Samaria really starts to take off, the Spirit of God tells Philip to go to a remote location on a road through the desert. 
leave the revival and go out into the middle of nowhere. So once Philip got there, maybe there's nobody around. It's hot. On this road in the middle of nowhere, in the desert. I'm sure he must have been thinking, what am I even doing here? Maybe he stood there for a long time when they eventually saw a little cloud of dust in the distance there as a caravan of chariots started to come closer. It was probably not a chariot like this, like we think of from, you know, Ben-Hur or something like that. It was probably more like this, more like an ox cart. Uh, The same Greek word could be used for both types of vehicles. So this is where we meet a court official from Ethiopia. Now, the church father, Johannes Chrysostomus, in the late 4th century, said that there were Ethiopians present in Jerusalem on the first day of Pentecost, and that they were able to hear the message of the gospel in their own language. Now, at this point in Acts chapter 8, we don't really know how much time has passed since that first day of Pentecost. We don't know if it's a matter of days, a matter of weeks, a matter of months. We don't really know for sure. And uh, we don't know whether this Ethiopian official was in Jerusalem on that first day of Pentecost. Even if he wasn't, it was almost certain that he could have seen the very tangible, palpable effects of the first day of Pentecost as he encountered the very first believers there in Jerusalem. Now, there's a modern country in East Africa that's called Ethiopia. You've heard of it. But in ancient Greek text, when they, when they said Ethiopia, it basically meant the end of the earth. It's far away as done. But because of the name Candace that we have here in the text, we can be a little bit more precise as to where this Ethiopian eunuch came from. He was actually from a town called Meroe. And you see a picture of it here. There's, there are still ruins that can be visited today. It's on the Nile River in what is now today modern Sudan. Now, it's about 1,500 miles from Meroe to Jerusalem. That's about the distance from Altoona to Goose Bay, Labrador. Okay, so that's a long way. Today, if you were to drive a car from Meroe to Jerusalem, it would take you about 60 hours. He did it in an ox cart. (laughs) Okay, so that took a long time. Now, this Ethiopian official worked in the court of Queen Candace of the Ethiopians. Now, Candace was not her personal name. It was rather a title, like Queen Mother. The Candace in that culture, in that kingdom, was the mother of the ruling king, the reigning king. So uh, she was the Queen Mother. Her personal name was Gersamot Hendike VII. We know that from historical records. Now, in the ancient world... It was very common, common practice for men who worked in close proximity to the queen or to the king's harem or other women in the royal court that they would be eunuchs, that they would be castrated. And that was to ensure that any children who were born to any of the women in the royal court would be the children of the king and not some uh, you know, other affair that was going on. Now, as far as this Ethiopian eunuch goes, we don't know for sure whether he was Jewish or not. There was and is a line of Ethiopian Jews 
who, uh, who are said to be descended from the union between King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. That may be, this eunuch may have been part of that group. Um, and even though he had power in the court of the Queen Mother, and he was probably wealthy, the fact that he was a eunuch was a real disadvantage in many ways. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, in verse 1, we read that no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Is that the first time the word testicles has ever been spoken from the pulpit of this church? <clears throat> so if this eunuch was a Gentile, he would not be able to convert to the Jewish faith because he was a eunuch. He was castrated. If he was born into a Jewish family, he would still not be able to participate fully in worship in the synagogue or in the temple in Jerusalem. So imagine what it was like for him when he came to Jerusalem, probably for the first time in his life, considering how far it was and how long this journey would have taken, but the anticipation that he must have felt. And, but at the, very, the most that he could have experienced was entering into what they call the court of the Gentiles, which was kind of the outskirts of the temple complex. This was a very noisy area where people were coming and going all the time and milling about and exchanging money and buying and selling animals for the sacrifices and everything. And it was here in this court of Gentiles where Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers, remember? And said that um, my house shall be called a house of prayer for people from every nation but you've made it into a den of robbers. So whatever this Ethiopian experience when he came to Jerusalem, it was probably not much of a worship experience as we think of it. But maybe this is where he bought his Isaiah scroll that he was reading from. So here we are, probably days later, as the Ethiopian has begun his long journey back home to Africa. When Philip comes close to the cart, which is probably only going slightly faster than walking speed, he hears the Ethiopian reading aloud. Now, at that time in the ancient world, people didn't read silently. They only read aloud. All reading was done aloud. It was 350 years later when St. Augustine expressed his amazement that St. Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, knew how to read silently. You didn't hear anything, but he still knew what was on the paper. It just blew his mind. Now, I don't know if you can read in a car or not. I, I can't do it. You know, even with our modern cars with suspension and our good roads and everything else, I just can't read in a car. I get a little motion sick. Think of what it was like for him, riding in an ox cart on this dirt road for weeks on end. It's crazy. We don't know if this African man was reading in Hebrew or Greek. I would say probably reading in Greek uh, as that was the, the, the language of international trade and communication at that time. And if he was a Gentile, he wouldn't be able to read in Hebrew anyways, most likely. So when Philip hears what the Ethiopian is reading, he asks him if he understands. And the eunuch says, well, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? And then I really love what happens next, where it says that Philip got into the cart and beginning with this scripture... He told him the good news about Jesus. Now, I don't know how much this Ethiopian had read in Isaiah before he got to 
chapter 53, this passage that's quoted here in our text in in, uh, Acts 8. But uh, if he began at the beginning, which I suppose he probably did, he probably bought a whole Isaiah scroll and started at the beginning, as one does, and uh, read the way through. He would have come to chapter 11 uh, in Isaiah, where he would have read a messianic and even millennial prophecy that God would raise up someone from the people of Israel upon whom the Spirit of the Lord would rest, who would lead in wisdom and understanding, judging righteously and bringing about a period of peace on earth. And in that context, in verse 11, it says, In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Ethiopia, Imagine how his ears must have perked up when he read those words and realized that there's a promise even for me here. And then just a few pages after the passage that the eunuch is reading here from Isaiah 53, we read this text from Isaiah chapter 56, verses 3 and 4. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Do you realize how significant these words would have been to a eunuch? who couldn't have sons and daughters, that God has given this extraordinary promise that in the kingdom of God, that that he is going to establish in through this person we're reading about here in Isaiah 53, that there will be a place for the broken and the marginalized, for the oppressed and the outcasts of society, for people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And this is a message of hope for every person, no matter if you're black or white, if you're a man or a woman, if you're gay or straight, if you're American or an immigrant, if you're single, married, divorced, widowed, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what baggage you have in the past, there's a message of hope for you. Because Jesus Christ was taken like a sheep who was led to the slaughter. As he bore our sins willingly on the cross to take the punishment for the sin of the world. Because of that, there is hope for you and me. His victory over death when he rose from the dead gives us the hope of eternal life in the presence of God. And God promises that every person who places their Faith and their trust in Jesus Christ will receive this inheritance that is better than sons and daughters. So what is the result of this uh, encounter? We see first that not only is this Ethiopian eunuch the first Gentile in the book of Acts to convert to faith in Christ, but he's also from a sexual minority and from a different race, ethnicity, and nationality. And then we see that the eunuch asks what could prevent him from being baptized. 
this is not simply a confession of faith or a statement of faith. Uh, excuse me. It's a, a genuine desire, a genuine longing to know whether he can now be part of the people of God in light of the fact that he's a eunuch and was not welcome into the people of Israel as a eunuch. And the church father Irenaeus, who lived around 180 AD, says that this eunuch then became a missionary to his own people. <clears throat> so this black man became the forerunner of some very significant African Christian leaders in the centuries to come, including Cyprian, Origen, Tertullian, Athanasius, and Augustine. And, in, and Ethiopia, in particular, has a remarkable Christian history, including 11 amazing churches in the town of Lalibela that are each carved out of one gigantic rock. Now, the story of this eunuch from Africa is the story of a man who has been seeking God. He went the whole way from Africa to Jerusalem because he was seeking God, even though he knew he would not be able to fully enter into worship in the temple. He bought a Bible or at least a, a scroll of the book of Isaiah, something that would have cost a lot of money at that time, but he did it because he was seeking God. He was reading the scriptures because he was seeking God, and he asked Philip to explain what he was reading because he was seeking God. Where are the people today who have a teachable spirit? Where are the people today who are seeking God? Now, as a Gentile, a eunuch, and an African, this man probably wondered what he was even doing in Jerusalem when all this stuff happened. Philip probably didn't understand either what he was doing there. He'd left this amazing revival going on in Samaria and had gone out to some remote location in the desert. So both of them were probably wondering at some stage, what am I even doing here? I've been a missionary for a very long time. This month marks 39 years since I was first appointed by Greater Europe Mission for Service in Europe. Some of you who have known me for a long time know that I started out in Iceland for four years. And when I first went to Iceland, I went through a time when I also wondered what I was even doing here. So I have something I'd like to show you now. I first moved to Iceland in 1985. I was only 23 years old at that time. Iceland was a brand new field for Jem, and we had no clear idea of what our ministry would be. Our assignment was simply to learn the language, get to know the situation, the spiritual climate there, and see what needs were, and see how God could use us there. I was kind of discouraged. I felt a bit frustrated. I, I felt like I hadn't really accomplished anything. There were no Icelandic people that had come to Christ. I had no close Icelandic friends. And so I felt a bit like a failure. At some point, I met a young man named Stefano, who was from Italy. And he had lived in Berlin for a while before he came to Iceland. And there he had come into contact with some German believers. And they had witnessed to him and given him a German Bible. Well, when he got to Iceland and was living there, he was very lonely and experiencing cabin fever, living in a small rented room going through the long, dark, cold, Icelandic winter. And so he just started reading this German Bible. And the Word of God just spoke to him. And on his own, he committed himself to Jesus Christ. 
And when he met me and he discovered that I was a Christian, his face lit up and he said, Oh, you're a Christian? Have I got some questions for you? I don't know if I'm a Catholic or a Protestant or what. All I know is that when I read the Bible now, I believe it. Part of my ministry was leading a discovery Bible study for non-believers. But Stefano became part of this group. We were a group of uh, seven or eight university students who would gather together and we would study Jesus' interactions with one of the people from the Gospels. And then we would discuss these stories together. Well, because Stefano had so many questions about the Christian faith, I recognized the need for follow-up and for discipleship in his life. And so we started to get together every Sunday for these marathon discipleship sessions. We started off on Sunday morning by going to church together, then we would eat lunch, and then spend all afternoon and into the evening just discussing absolutely everything. The importance of memorizing Bible verses, whether we need to confess our sins to a priest, and forgiveness for past sins, and finding God's calling and direction in life. And even at that point, Stefano was starting to wonder, could God use him in some sort of mission capacity? Several months later, he ended up leaving Iceland and returning to Italy. I put him into contact with some GEM co-workers there, but then I basically lost touch with him. So many years later, after the internet really started to take off, I was wondering, what would have happened to, to Stefano? And so I googled his name, and I found him. He was working as a Bible translator. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. So I got into contact with him again and found out that he had gone on and done a second PhD in Hebrew exegesis and was now living in Germany as a consultant for the International Bible Society working on translation projects in Indonesia and Eritrea and all over the world and even worked on one of the new German Bible translations. Now it makes total sense how God took a language nerd like me from the United States and sent me to Iceland to meet a language nerd from Italy to help disciple him and help him take the first steps in his new walk with Jesus Christ. You never know what God is doing behind the scenes in a person's life. And you never know how those things that we do and the words that we speak into the life of another person, how they're going to bear fruit in that person's life. We have this image of the body of Christ. And, and Paul even writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 how he sowed the seed, but Apollos watered it. But it's God that gives the increase. And so we all work together with our different personalities, our gifts, to together create a harvest. And so now it's completely obvious to me why God sent me to Iceland, why I spent all those years learning the language and trying to meet people and those years of intense loneliness that I experienced there, it was for one person. <coughs>